0: Hãy subscribe tư, Còn... Is hell. Live from the crumbling edifice of the world empire, the red, white, and blue Praetorian guards closing in on us as we hoist the flag of the least resistance, signaling the end of it all. This is Limbo. I am not Chuck, nor do I wish I was. I am still just producer Sebastian, producing and monologuing again this week. A duty that all of us behind uh, the scenes monkeys are pulling as long as our dearly beloved host Chuck Mertz um, is still recuperating from what I understand is the result of getting cursed by a particularly thin-skinned Neo-Pagan. We are in negotiations with said Neo-Pagan and things are looking good. We are finalizing the contract that we will never say anything disparaging about their beliefs on air ever again. And they have promised to lift the curse once the ink has dried. Uh, wait, now I start feeling weird. I shouldn't have made a joke about neo-pagans. Ah, uh, Well, that's the sacrifice I bring for showbiz. This is not an insurrection. This is not a revolt. This is limbo. Producing today's show is me, Sebastian. Uh, and what's new with me... Who cares? You're not listening to This Is Hell to hear from me. You want to know what's up with Chuck. And guess what? I got news, fresh off the printer. Your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, will return this Friday, May 6th, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell with breaking news and an all-new Monologue. New, 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 monologue, monologue, monologue. Uh, not only will Chuck have an exclusive update, update, update on this year's This is Hell anniversary party and Art Show, Art Show, Art Show. This is Art. But he will also be talking drugs. Drugs he was giving during his hospitalization for emergency life-saving surgery and drugs he has not, including some he's never tried. But that won't stop Chuck from sharing his ill-informed opinion. That's the Chuck we all know and love. To hear the breaking news about this year's party and Chuck talk uh, about drugs, listen to Friday's This Is Hell live streaming and podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Meanwhile, well, our YouTube page is now in a somewhat more presentable state than it was a month ago. We promise to have more interesting things happening there in the future. Uh, But it's still kind of lonesome out there. So if you want to help us change that, first go to youtube.com slash thisishellradio1996. This is Hell Radio in letters in 1996 in numbers for our channel and subscribe. And then spread the good word. And one of the things we have fresh supplies of, even in Chuck's absence, are questions from hell. Uh, this week's question from hell, dear listeners, is What's distracting you from class war? What's distracting you from class war? You can send us your answer to this week's question from hell via Facebook at Facebook.com, This Is Hell Radio, DM it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or email it to Chuck along with your wishes for him to get better to chuck at thisishell.com or mail it to us producers, alex at thisishell.com or yours truly at seb, that's S-E-B, at thisishell.com. We must have your answer by the end of today's show following an all-new segment in place of the moment of truth by Jeff Dortchen, who also couldn't make it today, even though he's in the studio, but he's indisposed. Uh, The best answer to the question from Hell will win its author instant enlightenment and all the romantic conquests they can carry on one arm, powered by whatever piece of this is Hell merch they want. It will make them irresistible. Even if your romantic interest might be, you know, a dog, a cat, a particularly fancy bee, you can get the t-shirt, the tote bag, the trucker hat, the coffee mug, the loaded flash drive containing the This Is Hell archive of interviews, the face mask, or the winter hat. You can see all of our merchandise right now if you go to thisishell.com and click on support. There you can contribute to completely listener-funded This Is Hell. After all, it's you, the listener, who makes this here show possible, so this is basically all your fault. So thanks to all of you. Thanks a lot for your support. I will have some of your answers following the upcoming interview. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your life at the gas station, at the doctor's office, in the car, waiting for your kid's teacher to come out of his house so you can show him that giving your offspring a C in math has consequences. This is Hell Last week, I talked about American police, and that that's a topic that I could go on about for a lot longer time, and today I'm doing, well, not quite that. But there is a tangential relationship between today's topic and last, last week's topic. The United States of America are an imperial power. That seems to be a controversial statement that apparently only those of us on the far left are making um, sincerely. Um. And uh, yeah, if we're being serious, and if the United States are uh, is an empire, uh, would that actually be a bad thing? After all, the United States is supposedly the greatest country that ever was and ever will be. But besides that, how can the United States be possibly an empire? The founding fathers themselves rebelled and rose up against an empire. Something like this. Something like this uh, argument is, is a usual counter to the assertion of, America, of America's imperial character that more conservative folks might give you. Uh, but of course, America's form of imperialism is not quite like that of the empires of the past. For one, in itself, understanding the, um, uh, the United States does not see itself as an imperial power. This is what the guest of the interview I picked for today would describe as an informal empire. American imperialism is not so much directly political, but rather operates through other means, first and foremost economic, backed up by the massive and awesome and unprecedented power of the American military. The American armed forces maintain about 750 military bases across the globe outside of the United States and her territory, so if that's not an empire, I don't know what is. Uh, And the wars that the United States has fought since World War II were all, to some degree, wars of empire. And, like, even wars before World War II were essentially wars of empire, the Spanish-American War, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, And the wars, but the wars since World War II, were all to ensure, to defend, or to expand the interests of the imperial hegemony. And you could also make the argument that the wars before World War II served that purpose. Um, And now, but what does any of this have to do with police and the issues that American police have, and, uh, the issues that Americans have with their police. Well, let's, because the American empire has been subjugating people around the world for, well, it depends on when one starts regarding the United States as a, as a real empire. Um, and as with most imperial projects, this so-called imperial boomerang effect has begun to take effect, um, on the empire itself and started to take the empire itself apart. Um, so this term itself was first used by Hannah Arendt in her Origins of Totalitarianism, um, talking about Nazi Germany, essentially. And effect- effectively, the imperial boomerang describes the dynamic that when an empire implements certain measures, techniques, and policies in its imperial domains, on imperial subjects who are not citizens, these these issues, these things will eventually end up being used inside the empire on citizens of the Empire. And in the American context, this imperial boomerang can be witnessed in action very vividly when looking at all the hand-me-down instruments of colonial warfare that make it into the hands of local police. From armored vehicles originally built to secure oil in Iraq that now patrol the streets of some podunk town in rural Arkansas, to surplus rifles sold to the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, to newfangled riot control devices that were first tested on on, on Afghans before returning or, well, making their way to the streets of New York. But there's more. The tactics of suppression that were first used on America's imperial subjects in Iraq, Afghanistan, and wherever else uh, the American empire went to war, quote-unquote defending freedom in the past decades, are all coming back home. American police departments are known to disappear subjects and and subjecting them to similar enhanced interrogation techniques as used in places like Abu Ghraib on on American soil now. Chicago itself supposedly has more than one so-called black side facility where prisoners are essentially detained under very similar circumstances as they would be in CIA torture facilities in Afghanistan and other places. American police officers frequently train with the Israeli military And that is, at least allegedly, where the American police have picked up the tactic of shooting into a body of a suspect until it stops moving. Uh, And that is what happens when the methods that were developed to police imperial fringes come back home. And a lot of books have been written about this phenomenon, uh, from Radley Balco's 2013 Rise of the Warrior Cup to Stuart Schrader's 2019 uh, book Badges Without Borders. Uh, but this is just one a- aspect of the Imperial Boomerang. In 2020, British researcher and writer Connor Woodman wrote a series of articles for Verso Books detailing the effects of the Imperial Boomerang that were swooshing around the world at the time and still are. Uh, Chuck interviewed Connor on June 6, 2020. Um, and the link to the articles are, as usual, in the podcast description. And now let's get to the interview. Ah, enjoy. This is
1: hell. For centuries, imperialism imposed its colonial rule all over the world, subjugating huge populations to their will and slaughtering them if they did not comply. But as those empires fell and their former subjects gained independence, many of them returned to the imperial nation itself, challenging the very concept of imperialism at its heart. Here to help us understand the failed... Uh, the fallout from 400, if not more, years of imperialism and what it means for the former empire's independent researcher, writer Connor Woodman, who posted the five part series at Verso Books website, The Imperial Boomerang, which you can find at VersoBooks.com. Welcome to This Is Hell, Connor.
2: Hi, Chuck. How you doing?
1: Good. You start the series by writing Imperialism is often conceived of as something that is done to an other. Dominant states over the past 500 years, overwhelmingly the European and North American states, impose military, political, and cultural domination over disempowered foreign populations. Those foreign populations in this conception are the parties which suffer the enduring negative effects of imperialism. Imperialism is something which happens over there in the colonies. The domestic polities of imperial nations are of little political or analytical interest when examining colonial history and practice. To you, what explains why we do not recognize what you call the imperial boomerang effect, the effect where, as you describe it, a specific mechanism by which imperialism has profoundly molded the political and social structure of the countless, uh, the countries carrying it out, the imperial boomerang effect. To what extent do we recognize that boomerang effect that our imperialism overseas causes problems back at home?
2: I don't think we recognize it much at all. Um, And I guess there's a question of who we mean by we, Um, there's the kind of mainstream um, representations, the mainstream understandings of history that you receive in schooling, in the media, um, in your museums. Um, And certainly there's I mean, not only is there little understanding of the imperial boomerang effect, at least in this country, there's very little understanding of, and I'm, I'm from the UK here, um, there's very little understanding of um, the history of imperialism generally. Um, actually, it's it's quite massively kind of obfuscated, um, ignored. Um, and when it is discussed, it's um, discussed in terms that are kind of widely divergent from um, the actual reality of the history. Um, the reason, the, the audience I was addressing more in the piece is kind of the broadly defined the left, the kind of progressive um, or socialist inclined um, sections of Western populations um, where, you know, a lot of writing on imperialism, where the history of imperialism is taken much more seriously, but a lot of writing on it um, tends to perceive imperialism as something that is kind of uh, starting at the center of the empire and then emanating outwards towards the colonies Um, and there's kind of subjugated populations who suffer the effect of imperialism um, in the colonies but um, there's not much of a a two-way sort of process there's not much rebounding um, of the effects back into and the imperial heartland Um, and i wanted to kind of address that and, and point out once you pointed it out it seems quite obvious that of course um, for countries that have practiced imperialism for hundreds of years um, and have, you know, vastly shaped the nature of um, huge swathes of the planet, um, of course, it couldn't not have an effect on on the very um, identity, on the very practices and institutions of those countries themselves. Um, why we don't tend to think about that, um, I mean, it, it's difficult to say precisely what the psychological political mechanisms are that are resulting in that, but it's probably part of a general kind of um, racist kind of orientation legacy um, in the West where we, when we center the fact that we have done things to other people and we have been the cause of political changes overseas, um, we don't necessarily like to think of the fact that we might have been the receptors of um, of those effects as well, and that there might have been a two-way process, and that actually the activities of the colonised as well um, can also have effects on on the domestic um, uh, kind of countries. Um, so we don't like to think that maybe our culture, maybe our institutions, um, come to some extent uh, to be the way they are precisely because of the activities of people in the global south and their resistance to us and the kind of two-way interaction between the colonized and the colonized. Um, we we like to think of ourselves as sort of self-contained nations that have our own national history and contiguous kind of national boundaries. Um, and that's our, the kind of mythology that's developed um, around kind of national histories. Um, we don't like to think that actually it's a lot more complicated, it's a lot more messy, um, and non-white peoples, um, their resistance and their response to our impositions um, has had a major role in, in our own histories.
1: I've never really understood the disconnect between uh, this idea of being an. Imp- empire and this idea of actually committing to imperialism if let, let me let me explain one of the things that i it's just always kind of freaked me out is that here in the united states nobody ever wants the united states to be called an empire to be said that it is acting in any kind of imperial way it doesn't seem to me at least that the british empire seems to have that kind of concern over being called an empire to you what explains the shame of imperialism that we have here in the United States, yet the willingness to impose that imperialism all over the world.
2: Well, it's a curious feature of the US and I think it it sort of is a product of uh, partly the nature of the historical period in which the US empire developed and partly a product of um, the kind of nature of the justification of the United States as a country, which has always been Um, bound up with an alleged kind of anti-colonialism, whether it was uh, in the initial rebellion against the British Empire that they kind of took up the mantle of anti-imperialism to kind of, you know, free the United States from um, British imperial influence, um, which, of course, wasn't really an anti-imperialist um, effort wasn't really an, a genuinely anti imperialist revolution. It was an attempt by one section of the kind of white settler class to create a new separate empire um, that would span from, you know, eventually from sea to sin- shining sea. Um, so, yeah, and the way that the U.S. kind of uh, tried to fight the Cold War during the 20th century was by positioning itself as a new kind of power, Woodrow Wilson, uh, promoting the ideas of self-determination, um, kind of different from the old European colonial powers, Um, So there was an element of kind of the justification for what the US did and what gave it legitimacy that was always bound up ideologically with this idea of anti imperialism, anti colonialism, which, of course, um, it wasn't. Um, That was just basically just an ideological sheen for a new form of imperialism. Um, The other factor is that uh, in the 20th century, particularly Imperialism and colonialism have been massively delegitimized um, through the process of decolonization of massive struggles that have been waged by millions and millions of people in the global south, um, from Algeria to Kenya to Vietnam, um, and you know successfully delegitimized the notion and to some extent the practice of imperialism um, across the world. So it's no longer acceptable to call yourself an empire, um, even if you are in fact an empire, which the US is, and the US. You know it's much more of an informal empire. You generally don't go and place your flag um, on a country and say this is now u s territory. um I mean, there is a bit of that in Guantanamo bay and and elsewhere um but generally, um the forms of colonization that are undertaken by the u s are much more informal. They're about economic domination. they're about um sort of military bases, they're about the control of international institutions. So it's easier to deny that um that it's an empire, even though Under any reasonable definition, um, the vast expanse of U.S. power around the world, militarily, economically, culturally, um, couldn't be described as anything other than an empire of some form.
1: And that's this neo-imperialism. What explains why it seems to be so invisible and not just to the citizenry who it's supposed to... Obfuscate that kind of imperialism, but what what explains why it's so invisible to those within the media who are not reporting on this as an imperial process?
2: Well, um, the media is very bound up in in maintaining the power structures. Um, you know, but there are various mechanisms that operate within the media to keep. Um, kind of uh, unhelpful opinions and perspectives um, from reaching the mass of the population, whether it's the sort of uh, the class from which journalists um, are selected, the nature of their political opinions, the kind of um, who gets promoted, um, who gets uh, selected to report certain things. Um, there's these kind of ideational factors um, operating at the individual journalists. Um, and there's kind of, you know, subtle... Uh, ways in which the kind of dependency of um, newspapers on their proprietors, for example, um, particularly in this country. I mean, we have um, huge billionaires um, who own... Uh, the newspapers, various newspapers, and um, use the newspapers as their own sort of um, political propaganda sheet. I mean, Rupert Murdoch is the is the classic example. There was not a single newspaper around the world um, owned by Rupert Murdoch that didn't support the Iraq war, for example. And it's very obvious that there's a, a strong reason for 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 why that is. Um, uh, but more broadly, um, you know, why don't we um, sort of know about what happened? I mean, to give you some examples of of concretely, the processes in in this country of kind of erasing history and erasing the reality of um, the British Empire. When the British Empire was collapsing in the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, there was a kind of directive that was given across the whole of the empire called Operation Legacy, um, whereby colonial administrators, as they pulled out, Of the british colonies were instructed to take any uh, documents that might be sensitive um, and either to burn them or to throw them into current free waters that was the exact order um, or to uh, sort of um, ferry them back to the uk where they would be hidden away in secret archives and we're talking millions and millions and millions of documents here um, it's an entire kind of record of, of what happened in the dying days of the British Empire which they didn't want newly independent governments um, to get their hands on and then expose. Um, and the documents contain information about um, sort of concentration camps in Kenya in the 50s, um, about sort of the war in Malaya against the, the communists there, um, various kind of um, incredibly abusive methods that the British Empire was using to try and maintain control of its empire um, and these documents were all destroyed or, or hidden away for a long long time Time. And it was only until the 2010s, um, due to the work of some of the um, Kenyan Mau Mau's who had been tortured by the British at the end of the empire, and some um, historians here in the UK, who managed to basically expose what happened and the whole um, lie kind of unraveled from there. Um, so there's, you know, very concretely, there are massive um, processes of destroying history, um, and destroying the history of the empire. And it's not surprising that then people don't um, know about what's happened.
1: We are speaking with Connor Woodman. He wrote the five-part series at Verso Books' website called The Imperial Boomerang. You can find that series at versobooks.com, and within the writing... Uh, Connor quotes a whole bunch of past guests on our show Robert Poland, Naomi Klein, Liz Fiquette, Alfred McCoy So all of our listeners who have been listening for a while you, A lot of our past guests are quoted in this And I think that you'll really enjoy his writing because of that And you can find all those interviews at our website Thisishell.com You write that the term imperial boomerang And associated political theorizing First emerged as scholars and activist intellectuals Attempted to grapple with the historical experience Of the Holocaust following World War II How, some were asking, could one of the world centers of artistic scientific and political innovation weimar germany succumbed to one of the most all-encompassing acts of genocide ever witnessed some in a still popular explanation sought to exceptionalize hitler and nazi germany the holocaust was a freak occurrence a deviation from traditions of european entitlement or enlightenment uh, humanism and democracy, a mass psychosis of the German nation, perhaps. For others, the rise of the Nazi party was explicable by reference to a series of unfortunate historical contingencies, the Treaty of Versailles, the Great Depression, the failure of the progressive German opposition. If imperialism can lead to fascism, and often does, what role does imperialism then play today in what we see is the rise of the far right, not only in the U.S., U.K., and Europe, but elsewhere in places like Brazil and the Philippines as well. What role does imperialism play in the rise of the far right?
2: I think imperialism has a massive role because um, kind of imperialism and and racism basically go hand in hand. In order for um, Western countries to legitimate, to um, kind of accept with a good conscience um, what they do to the global south, uh, they have developed a huge structure of of kind of racism, which is you know obviously assigning um, swathes of um, humanity uh, a kind of lower status based on um, supposed physical or mental characteristics. Um, so uh, that basically imperialism carries on today in forms of neo imperialism. There's huge, vast international inequality between West, uh, between the West and the rest of the world. Um, Western countries, Western economic. Um, institutions continue to dominate the global south, um, and the level of exploitation internationally um, is vast. You only have to look in a, you know, a Chinese sweatshop or Bangladeshi sweatshop owned by a Western corporation, or maybe a subcontractor that is working for a Western co- corporation, um, funneling back the value um, into the West. Um, to kind of see the the reality, um, that still exists, or to look at the IMF or the World Bank or um, certain parts of the UN that are completely dominated by um, Western economic agendas and and economic interests, um, or to look, as we already mentioned, at the vast kind of unilateral U.S. Um, empire around the world with the military bases um, and the kind of cultural domination of of countries. Um, So imperialism still exists. It didn't disappear when um, the flags of the European countries were lowered. Um, It was reinvented, as Kwame Nkrumah put it in his famous book, as neo-imperialism. So it follows from that, that in order to justify that, racism has to be reproduced within the countries of the West itself. Um, And of course it does. And it takes particular forms at different times and different places. In this country, in the UK, um, we have kind of had a long period of um, semi-reckoning or coming to terms with um, the collapse of our formal empire um, and failing to come to terms with the fact that um, we haven't completely dismantled all of those structures of imperialism, that we perpetuate them and that we ride on the coattails of US imperialism in various ways. Um, And that process of reconstituting kind of British identity after the empire has been very, very imbricated with um uh, notions of racism that were developed in in um, uh, under the empire so um, we see the rise of the far right in this country domestically um kind of in its contemporary forms is very much linked to the end of the empire and the end of the formal empire, the continuation of international inequality and the migration of populations from our former colonies um, in South Asia or the Caribbean or wherever um, into our country. Um, And in response to that, you know, we'd we'd spent centuries kind of um, occupying those places and sending our white citizens to, to these places. And now when some of their descendants then want to come back to the UK, well, all of a sudden we want to redefine the UK as a contiguous national um, and sort of more or less white country. Um, And there are certain currents in our society which have responded in that way and have been stoked up by um, elements of the establishment in in the Conservative Party and elsewhere. Um, And I think that that You know, that generally that process of continued international inequality, continued um, exploitation and imperialism internationally by Western states against the rest of the world. The global migration that results from that from um, wars and poverty and um, increasingly environmental degradation um, means that um, there are elements that are lying around ready to be taken advantage of by far right movements. Um, in the U.S. or in the U.K. Um, and, you know, very scarily, Liz Vigetti um, has a, a book um, out a couple of years ago analyzing this in, in Europe in great detail. And the rise of the far-right movements um, is really worrying. And it's, But it's not just far-right movements. It's um, actually points out the mainstream in Europe um, and increasingly in the U.S. as well has been pushed towards the right and has been pushed towards absorbing more and more of the ideas and practices of, of, of what was considered um, kind of fringe fascist ideas and particularly around border policing. Um, And I think we're going to see an intensification of this unless we're able to produce a mass movement which can confront both the continuing practice of neo-imperialism and its concomitant um, manifestations of racism domestically um, as a kind of joined up um, internationalist movement.
1: And there's notions of race, there's notions of racism, as you point out in your writing. There are also, within imperialism, notions of racialization, and I want to make sure people understand this aspect of imperialism. You write that British intelligence and police surveillance helped constitute the downward racialization of the Irish, who were not considered fully white at the time. Racialization was a necessary appendage to colonial rule, one that was imported back into England along with the institutional practices of political policing, imported back from the uh, colonialism the colonial gaze was being turned inwards towards suspect migrant communities at home process which continues today with the intense surveillance and harassment of muslim communities in europe and the united states connor how can the irish not be white what does that say about the racialization of imperialism
2: so it's important to understand what racism
1: and what race
2: is. So race is not something that we, you know, that scientists can go out and find amongst the human population. Um, it doesn't have any kind of biological basis. It's so, it's a social system of power that is attached to um, physical characteristics of um, individuals or alleged physical or mental characteristics, and it's constantly shifting. So who's considered black and white, who's considered brown, who's considered slightly white or not quite white enough um, changes In time and place. Um, Some people who here in the UK will be considered black um, because they're mixed race. When they go to uh, the Caribbean, for example, they might be considered white because there's a different system of racialization there. Um, So what I'm trying to to get at in that series is um, that we have to kind of look at how this constantly shifting system of power, um, what we call race and racism, um, is connected to imperialism. Um, And it's a very effective method of um, controlling populations and of basically buying off um, the west, the Western um, working class. I mean, if you look at the emergence of the idea of race um, in the Caribbean um, and in North um, America, for example, um, it was very much bound up with slavery. But early, early slave plantations um, weren't exclusively populated by um, African um, enslaved persons. There were also um, sort of indentured laborers from Europe, kind of lower class, what we would now call white people um, who were working alongside in also in pretty terrible conditions um, on the plantations. Um, there. Now, race was kind of developed as a way of um, kind of dividing those two populations. So any kind of um, common interests between those indentured um, European laborers and the kind of African slaves um, was kind of broken up by saying to um, the European workers were well, your white. So you have something in, in common with the white people, um, the white planters and the ruling class of those Caribbean societies. You don't want to make common cause with the um, African um, and so-called black people um, that we've enslaved because they're fundamentally different from you. They're fundamentally less um, human than you. Um, and this this technique, this move by the white ruling class um, to basically kind of build a, a, a racial and cross-class coalition to kind of forestall the possibility of a um, cross-racial class coalition, um, was something that was then brought back and used domestically. Um, so this um, term white privilege that we that can we use quite a lot now um, in progressive circles, this was originally a way of describing how um, domestically, um, say in the United States, the ruling class, here in the United States or there in the United States where you are, um, would be able to basically buy off the white working class by giving them the crumbs from the table of exploitation and say, don't Um, combine in unions with your black workers, exclude black workers from the unions, um, we'll have a sort of joint white exploitation of black people. um, And you'll kind of get the psychological benefits of this um, idea of whiteness um, that you can ascribe to as an identity. Um, And in return, um, we'll kind of treat you a little bit better than than we would otherwise and definitely better than we're going to treat these black people. when in actual fact, it would, it's much more in the interests of those white workers that they combine um, on their class interests with um, other black and brown people and fight against their true exploiters who are the ruling class. Um, so this is kind of what, what we mean by those practices of racialization and how they're connected to the history of imperialism and colonialism.
1: So how much then uh, does colonialists, uh, does their whiteness define, do they define themselves by what they are not and what they are not is the colonized? Because I would think that that would not be very sustainable to be defining yourself, defining your whiteness, whatever that is, by a negative, by something that you are not. Is that sustainable? Are there serious drawbacks of defining yourselves by what you are not?
2: Well, there certainly is.
1: I mean, if, if we buy into the idea of
2: basic human equality, um, which most people would at least say on paper that they do agree with, um, we don't want to be basing it on any kind of system of exclusion. And once you exclude people from um, what counts as human, um, that's when extreme degrees of violence and um, exploitation begin to be allowed and, and begin to be legitimized. Um, and I mean, I think when we look at um, you know, Western countries. We look at look. Take the UK for example, where I live. Um, the kind of investment that the white population has in their identity as white people. Um, and the way that it is, as you say, defined against another, um, whether it's against kind of um, Pakistani migrants or against um, various forms of Muslim migrants, as it often is now, um, or whether it's against Polish and Eastern European migrants, as it is increasingly, who are, who are not really, again, this is where race, racialization comes in. They're not considered fully white, although their skin color is pretty much the same um, as British people's. They're not really fully included in the category of what's white. They're kind of not quite white enough. Um But if you look at the kind of uh, the politics and the mental state and the kind of um, level of happiness in this country, um, it's it's not there. We're a very, very kind of sad, angry country. And as we've seen with Brexit, um, with the election recently of of, um, Boris Johnson um, and over and over again with our political and social crises, um, we're deeply um, kind of we're suffering from a major affliction and the racism and the dehumanization that we practice against um, other people it doesn't make us happy and it doesn't give us a good sense of affirmative um, uh, identity. It doesn't make us liberated um, because, you know, it's it's a bit of a cliche, but it's true to say that when you bully or oppress someone else, um, you're harming yourself um, as much as you are the other person. Um, you know, you're not quite harming yourself as much. But certainly, there is an element of degrading, you know, degrading yourself of harming yourself um, through degrading your fellow human. Um, and I think we see that in over and over again, in, in European countries, and you look at far right, or you speak to far right um, activists or people who are leaning towards far right views, um, white people in this country and elsewhere, um, they're not happy people most of the time. They're pretty, you know, pretty miserable and they're suffering a lot of the time they're suffering from all sorts of forms of exploitation in their own life, which they're then directing um, kind of violently outwards against um, people who are even lower than they are. Um, so, yeah, I think we, we need to overcome this for our own sake as much as for anyone else's.
1: You also mentioned that neoliberalism has influenced everything in the West from rising inequality to declining life prospects, our deepest conceptualization of the world to our ways of relating to one another. It is all part of a product of the neo-imperial boomerang effect. And you point out how this first took place under Salvador Allende or uh, after the falling of uh, Salvador Allende and uh, in, Ch- in Chile in the 1970s. This was the thing that many people referred to as the Chilean miracle, which did seem to work for a very short period of time when you look at the economic and financial metrics of Chile, but would later quickly become a disaster. And because of that misleading success, it was sold back here in the States. And now we have the colonial project of neoliberalism. Here in the U.S., how do we better understand neoliberalism when we understand it as a colonial or imperial project?
2: Well, I think we we understand anything by understanding its its history and and where it emerged. Um, and it certainly again gives the impetus strategically. And I think this, you know, what I'm trying to get at and what I do in the last piece um, in the series of the five articles is to try and uh, point out some ch- strategic lessons because I think. Um, where some political writing go wrong is where they, they only offer an analysis or a kind of diagnosis of a problem without connecting that analysis to um, how a, a movement might kind of operate um, to confront it. Um, and I think, again, to, to come back to this country, but I think it's similar and definitely similar in the US, um, understandings of neoliberalism amongst the progressive movement have, again, been very much focused on the domestic s- sphere. Um, and there's certainly a huge I mean, there's a huge amount that needs to be attended to in terms of its um, origins in the domestic sphere and the way that um, domestic ruling classes were using neoliberalism and deploying it against, say, for example, the miners um, here, um, the kind of most militant section of the working class here in the UK. Um, But um, neoliberalism is a global phenomenon and um, part of the um impacts of neoliberalism um, have kind of been tested in the global south, um, for example, in Chile, and then through the IMF structural adjustment programs across Africa and much of the rest of the world, um, and then kind of deployed back into Europe. And we saw this um, in the early 2010s with Greece, for example, when there was the eurozone crisis um, and Greece was um, kind of under all of this odious debt that had been um, imposed upon it by Western European financial creditors. Um, And the IMF and the European Union and Germany were um, trying to force Greece to pay these debts, even though Greece was completely bankrupt. Um, And they swooped in and did exactly the same to Greece as what they've been doing for a couple of decades in the global south to African countries to Southeast Asian countries by saying we will only bail you out if you agree to basically surrender all of your democratic rights, all of your political sovereignty, and allow us to determine your economic policy and push it in a neoliberal direction. And the results in in Greece have been horrifying in terms of um, social deprivation, homelessness, poverty, etc. So there's an example of how um, when something starts out in the global south, it very soon migrates back. Um, And as a movement, We have to be attendant to that and we have to be on the lookout to basically showing solidarity with people in the global south and to working with movements in the global south. As soon as these things start to get imposed, because it's very easy for us to say, "Okay, well, this mass surveillance technology, um, this method of repression, this new economic system is only being imposed on people far away. Um, We're just kind of, you know, it's bad, but we won't really do anything about it and we won't really try to fight it um, tooth and nail because it's not really impacting us. Um, but just from a self-interested point of view, aside from the obvious moral um, issues with that, just from a self-interested point of view, um, it's it's foolish strategically because those things are going to be imposed back on you. Um, and as exactly what happened with neoliberalism, with the, the coup in Chile um, and the kind of you know Chicago economic boys going and testing out all their theories there um, and then it being brought right back um, to the US and UK with, with Reagan and Thatcher. Um, so it's it's an appeal on my part to basically uh, for, a, for a more internationalist movement to be reborn and for the left to be constantly trying to make connections with uh, movements in the global south. There are dozens of incredible movements in the global south fighting these kind of things right on the front lines. Um, and, uh, you know, we all have much to gain by collaboration across those national lines.
1: And I want to give, uh, have you give a quick example of what the threat, the real threat is and what the outcome can be. You were touching a little bit earlier on the minor strikes of the 1980s. You write, The legacy and continuation of colonialism offered the British ruling class a potent repertoire of tactics for its counter-subversion strategies at home. The British working class suffered a defeat in the minor strike of the 1980s from which it has failed to recover. The imperial boomerang had a key and hidden role in the decapitation of that movement. This is the ability for imperialism to quash dissent. How did the police change Britain through the repression of the miners' strikes? How might Britain be different today if that repression had not occurred?
2: Well, counterfactuals are obviously incredibly uh, difficult to say with any precision, but um, the miners' strike was a massively significant event, not just for Britain, but um, internationally. I mean, the miners were, um, and the National Union of Mine Workers was one of the most militant, um, workers unions, uh, in all of Europe. Um, and actually in the early seventies, they were so powerful, they managed to bring down a conservative government, um, and to bring in a new, a new labor regime. Um, and they were kind of the backbone of, of working class organization, um, to a large extent, um, the kind of, you know, you know they were a kind of bastion of, of support for the Labour Party and for progressive kind of um, social development in this country in general. Um, and their defeat um, in the 19, mid-1980s at the hands of Thatcher, which was a huge and vicious struggle, a real kind of old school class struggle um, where you know both sides were fully aware of um, the kind of... Uh, death um, grip that they had on each other and um, and were kind of a, a total fight to political death, um, which sadly the miners lost um, eventually after, you know, a long, long, hard strike. Um, the result of that was was kind of the linchpin of a complete disintegration of working class organization and union organization in this country. And some of the things happened in the US, which you'll be more familiar with. Um, but um, it was kind of the the real death knell for union organizing to a large extent in this country, which it's never went completely and it still exists. And in fact, we're starting to rebuild it a little bit here. Um, but we've never recovered to the level of industrial activity, to the level of self-organization um, that we had. And we've seen the the ultimate results of that in the election um, in December, which pitted a, um, a kind of socialist-inclined um, uh, Labour party one of the first kind of genuine socialist um, Labour Party leaderships that we've had, a kind of mass movement of hundreds of thousands of members of the Labour Party against a elitist, um, Eton educated, um, toff who was a kind of racist, a, a buffoon, a liar, um, a manipulator in Boris Johnson um, and, you know, to, to everyone's horror. to a lot of people's horror. Um, There were communities, ex-mining communities in the North that voted for, or at least didn't turn out for the Labour Party, and some of them voted for um, Boris Johnson's Conservative Party, which is the exact same Conservative Party which had destroyed these communities. Um, And you look at kind of the the state of some of the communities in the North that used to be based around the mining industries, the rates of, of suicide, of murder, of Um, kind of general social misery has gone up massively because they were completely abandoned, their entire identity and economic life was completely destroyed um, by Thatcher. And the product of that and the failure of the left to do anything about it um, has been that they uh, have been turned into a a weapon against um, the kind of Socialist Labour Party now. Um, So the the implications are huge um, and are still being worked out and it's an absolutely vital strategic question for the left in this country is how we reverse some of that. Um, And there are lots of discussions happening about that um, on the left at the moment that that I won't go into. But it's a huge, you know, the the minor strike was a huge blow for any kind of hope for um, moving towards a more just and equal society. And they were the kind of linchpin of the resistance against Thatcher and neoliberalism that was that was brutally crushed.
1: So uh, we've also seen in the last few decades the increased militarization of the police. What does that militarization of the police reveal to you about the state of imperialism? Does that tell you that the state of imperialism is, is far more strong and solid or that it is far more precarious?
2: It's extremely difficult to say um, because sometimes uh, systems of oppression and and systems of rule seem strongest just before the fall um, and sometimes they are genuinely um, extremely uh, strong and resilient. My my inclination is to think that we're passing into a phase of um, real crisis for imperialism and for capitalism in general um, and that the kind of increased brutal policing methods, which we're obviously seeing horrifyingly in the United States at the moment, and to a lesser extent, but still dramatic here in the United Kingdom. um, These expressions of of brutal um, kind of policing and violence against any kind of resistance is uh, a reflection, a symptom of a system in, in decline and a system that doesn't have an ability to address its flaws and to address the needs of an increasingly vast section of its population. And when you can't Um, sort of maintain social stability by increasing people's uh, well-being or through providing you know uh, home ownership or rising living standards or whatever it is when you can't do that the other option is to crack down with brutal violence Um, and i think that's what we're seeing increasingly now um, which is it's horrifying, but it also means that there are opportunities for the left if it gets its act together to um, take advantage of those crises and you know do what the neoliberals did to some extent, which is take seize advantage of the crisis in order to impose a new um, social and political settlement, um, but this time in the interests of the majority of the population, not in the interests of um, a tiny slither of um, of finance and um, uh, capital and um, the ruling class.
1: If I'm splitting hairs here, please feel free to correct me. You focus on it should be an anti-imperialist reaction from the left. There are those who believe that the protests that we are seeing around the world right now are should be focused on anti-racism or should be focused on anti-fascism or should be focused on anti-capitalism or that these protests should be about... Uh, opposition to white supremacy and white privilege, why do you see this as it should be a campaign against imperialism? Do all those things fall under imperialism? No, I think it should be an anti-racist and anti-imperialist
2: movement. And I think the fact that we tend to see um, those two things as somewhat distinct is a product of a kind of um, a breakdown of uh, intellectual work on the left to some extent, which I'm trying to address um, or make a small contribution to, to redressing in these um, in this series on Verso. Um, you know, to the, to the Black Panther Party, to the kind of uh, black power movement in the US in the late 60s, early 70s, um, the idea of anti-racism, and anti-imperialism were completely bound up together, um, and in, including other parts of the left beyond that. Um, they saw the interconnections and they saw how in order to be anti-racist, um, you have to be anti-imperialist as well, because there's a connection, as we sp- discussed earlier in the show, there's a connection between um, the racism at home and the dehumanization and brutalization of people overseas through processes of imperialism. Um, so you have to see the interconnections between them. Trying to fight one of them without the other um, is, I think, destined to fail, um, because if you're trying to address racism, it's more like firefighting. You're not getting to the one of the root causes of um, why racism develops. You might make some progress against it in the short term, but the long kind of structural pressures that um, that show up in the form of domestic racism won't be addressed until we start to address the international inequalities and address the fact that we are all our governments and our ruling classes are brutalizing people overseas. Um, so I think, you know, my, my plea is for um people to try and combine their analyses of these things and not to see them as distinct or separate um or as irrelevant to each other but um to know that this is a a system with all kinds of complex interconnections and the ruling class understands these interconnections quite well and their proposals usually are quite pretty joined up in terms of the different um, sexes of the social system that work together um, in order to maintain its smooth functioning. We have to be just as smart strategically about seeing the various interconnections um, between different parts of the system and their various weaknesses and contradictions
1: and um, exploiting them successfully. We have been speaking with independent researcher writer Connor Woodman who posted the five-part series at Verso Books website, The Imperial Boomerang. You can find that series at versobooks.com. Connor is also author of the Spy Cops in Context Papers, which you can find at crimeandjustice.org.uk. Connor, what we do as our final question for each and every one of our guests is we ask what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Our question from hell for you is, you write that the background conditions which provide the fertile ground for neo-fascist organizing, organizing which, as you cite another past guest on our show, Liz Ficchetti, has warned neo-fascist organizing is expanding at a terrifying rate across Europe, are to be found in the racism and imperialism embedded within Western society. As long as the West continues to dominate and exploit the majority of the world's darker people, the contradiction of liberal humanist rhetoric and exclusionary imperialist practice always risks being resolved into fascism. Any anti fascist movement has to simultaneously confront the architectures of imperialism. So, Connor. As long as the United States, as long as the UK, as long as the EU looks to other countries for low wage exploitable workers through immigration policy, will fascism be inevitable? Nothing is inevitable historically, um, but it will
2: increase the probability of it emerging. And that's exactly what we're seeing um, in Europe in Liz's book um, was very clear on that. And as we're seeing with um, the Trump administration um, and with disaster nationalism um, in various parts of the world um, that are linked to kind of racism that's been sloshing around for a long time. Um, So it's not inevitable. And of course, we can confront all of these things um, as a movement. The mass of the population does have have the power to do it if we're organized and determined enough. Um, but um, there is a real danger at the moment that we are in a kind of pre-phase of a new era of fascism in the West and that uh, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson and uh, Orban and all the others are going to look like a kind of clownish stress rehearsal for uh, what's coming down the line, especially as the crises of, of ecology and economics and um, social care um, intensify. If we don't get our act together and start proposing and winning um, proper alternatives and shifting the political terrain and the economic terrain and the, the kind of power back to working class people, um, I, I think there's a real risk. And I don't want to say anything's inevitable, but there's a real risk
1: that um, we will at some point in our lives um, wind up with another era of fascism. Uh, We skipped right over one of the five parts of the series, one that's on Algeria. I had about 40 questions written about that. We could have (laughs) had five different conversations that would have each lasted a half an hour about this. So I just want to make sure that all of our listeners please go check out Connor's writing at versobooks.com, The Imperial Boomerang. Our guest has been Connor Woodman. Connor, thanks so much for being on our show. Thanks so much. I
0: really enjoyed it. Um, We had some weird technical difficulties right now for some reason. Yeah, anyway. <sighs> okay, until Chuck's imminent return, we will continue playing these staff picks. We will also have all new rotten history, all new questions from hell, and new moments of truth starting this week. If you wish to show your appreciation for our work here, go to our site thisishell.com and click on support, where you can buy our merch or subscribe to our Patreon which you can find at patreon.com slash hell all of which keeps this here completely listener-supported blimp in the air. Without you, we got nothing. We guarantee to you on the graves of our second cousins that there will be all-new interviews, all-new monologues, and an all-new, all-old Chuck. So, thanks to all of you for your support. Now, let's see what answers we have for this week's question from Hell. A reminder for the deal listening audience, this week's question from hell was, What's distracting you from class war? What's distracting you from class war? Laura A. says, the effing laundry again. Sloan L. says, that Wing Rames pay for his Scientology classes with Arby sandwiches. I don't know, I must have missed that. I don't really know what that... That is, uh. Is Wing Rames doing Arby's commercials? I don't know. I don't watch TV. Uh. Kimji says, unfortunate teeth. Um. Yeah, and we will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following the upcoming installment of Seb's soapbox. Being the reason that your pet pet ant farm has unionized and went on st- went on strike since 1996 this is hell if you want to prove that one can have a successful left-wing talk radio podcast streaming pro- program without peddling subscription services to shampoo or toothbrushes to you you can subscribe to our patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell go to our website this is hell.com and click on support and see how you can further enable us to keep doing what we're doing, bad habits, good habits, and everything in between. If you want to be an enabler, at least enable some good things in the world. After the upcoming segment, I will read the final answers to this question question from Hell, and announce this week's glorious winner. Broadcasting live and in color from lands stolen from the Council of Three Fires, the Miami, the Ho-Chunk, the Menominee, the Sock, the Fox, the Kickapoo, and the Illinois people. Uh, that's a lot of people this land here was stolen from. This is hell. And here's one who knows what I'm talking about. Why, it's me. All by myself. Seb's soapbox. Abortion, abortion, abortion. You'd think the anti abortion camp's position is about one thing, but then people like me come around and will tell you that it's actually about something else entirely. They will tell you it's about life, and I'm going in and saying, telling you that no, actually, it's about denying women bodily autonomy. And they will come in and tell you, It's about the precious little babies that Jesus loves. And I will counter that. No, actually, it's about the religious right just needing a hot topic to rally around that was not segregation and just pure racism. They will come and say, it's about traditions of this country, and abortion has always been a crime until those pesky row people came along. And I will say, no, look, I'm a historian. It's actually not, it's not that thing. Abortion has been a non-issue for long, long stretches of American history until some dingbats with very shady motives decided that it was indeed a problem. I am aware that trying to catch the fascist right lying or demonstrating uh, that they are engaging in hypocrisy is not in and of itself terribly helpful. Smugly saying that, actually, Justice Alito is wrong about the history of abortion in this country won't really do much, since I have to assume that he and the people listening to him are well aware that he's not really telling the truth. However, as a historian, I believe it's also important to make sure that we have as well and educated a public as possible, and this here is my contribution towards that. So let me talk about abortion rights and the history of abortion rights in the United States. In the early United States, as in most places in early modern times, the very definition of abortion was very different from what it is today. Human life was not thought to have begun at conception, and a human fetus was not considered a human being. Life began in that conception back then with what was generally referred to as the quickening, which... Is not a bad Highlander movie, but the moment from which on out movement in the fetus can be detected by the mother, and or by others, if a pregnancy ended before that time, before a fetus quickened, usually no tears were shed, no garments rendered, and certainly nobody went to jail for murder, and no remains were buried. As historian Leslie Regan put it. Whether or not an abortion was lawful and morally right went hand-in-hand with women's experiences of their own bodies. It was them, after all, who felt the baby quicken. The criminalization of abortion did not happen out of ethical reasons. But, well, but, this is America, after all, so it was classism, profit-seeking, and white supremacy that, that were the reasons that abortions were criminalized. Most of the people who performed, or rather induced, abortions in the early 1800s, so in the early days of, of, of the United States, were herbalists and midwives. People generally outside of uh, the emerging American medical profession. And also women, right? In, in the American medical profession was mostly men. And so, not mostly, were men. Uh, and so the earliest proponents of anti-abortion policies were doctors who sought to get rid of pesky competition in the, in the 1820s. Uh, and they were later helped by Western expansion boosters uh, by the mid-century, when the drive to conquer uh, the rest of the unsettled continent came into full swing. And so abortions, by that logic, had to become illegal, so the white man could outbreed the red, the red and the brown and the black. So, for those keeping score, abortions were outlawed for classist and profit-seeking reasons, and then basically just for white supremacy. In defense of Justice Alito's position, both of those issues, white supremacy and profit-seeking, are, of course, deeply rooted in American history and tradition. But none of those early anti-abortion movements had much to do with religious reasons, or were directly concerned with uh, the life of the child. Later in the 19th century, most states banned abortion... Uh, unless they were necessary for medical reasons. And in practice, this translated into poor women either being jailed until a few decades later medical practitioners performing the abortions became the target of legal ire, or poor women just died trying to have an abortion. Um, And meanwhile, wealthy women had neither of these issues because they or their husbands or baby daddies could afford better doctors and lawyers. But how bad was it really for the poorer women? So, in terms of statistics, by the early 20th century, about one out of every five women who died from child-related complications uh, died of results from botched abortions. Uh, About 2,700 in the year 1930, which is a year uh, we actually have reliable numbers for. And by the early 1960s, this number rose... Rose to one out of four in white women, among women of color and black men, black women. Meanwhile, every other death, so every second death, one every one in two deaths from childbearing-related complications came from botched abortions. And uh, when calls rose for abortion legalization in the early 1970s affluent white women had long established what amounted to a thriving abortion tourism industry from America to countries that had in the meantime loosened their abortion laws. Most of those voices, calling for abortion legalization, were medical practitioners who were on the front line of witnessing the scope of the damage on the nation's uteruses that illegal abortions had caused. And then Roe v. Wade came along in 1973, ending almost a century of abortion restriction. But As this little exercise should demonstrate, abortion was not much of an early religious issue, ultimately. Not at that point, anyway. It became one, when it was made one, um, when the American right realized they would lose public support if they kept on being openly, blatantly racist. And so they turned on abortion as a rallying cause. The case that galvanized the religious right was when the IRS tried to take Bob Jones University's tax-exempt status away after the Wingnut Institute of Higher Education yeah, right, maintained racially discriminatory practices, segregation, and a ban on interracial dating. Which the university, by the way, kept until the year 2000, so on Bob Jones University you could not... <laughs> date somebody who was not from your race until the year 2000. Um, So Bob Jones Jr., Jerry Falwell Sr., and other ghouls got their well-coiffed heads together and tried to figure out how to maintain power in a world that broadly rejected their backwards ideas. And that's when they came up with the idea of championing anti-abortion instead of segregation. And the trick worked. Now the religious right got their ducks in a row, all waving the banners opposing abortion and getting outraged about that, even though only a few years earlier, as in the case of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, which in 1971 still rallied for illegal abortions, uh, many of the abortion haters were in fact, well, they were not bothered by the practice in the least. The people who were Bothered by abortions for the longest time were Catholics, actually. Um, but this is but Catholics for the most most of American history constituted uh, uh, mostly a, a minority, so they didn't matter that much. Granted, that changed into the present, um, but uh, that's and into the present, but that that's that's a different story for a different time. Um, but anyway, so if you ask any good religious scholar, though about religious reasons to be opposed to abortion, uh, they will tell you there's actually not much, if anything, in the Bible that forbids abortions, and on the contrary that the Bible establishes a principle that the mother's life is always more important than the child's, Um, as in, if uh, you have to decide whether uh, the mother should die or the child because of certain complications, then the mother should survive, because, well, the mother can make more babies, and if if the child is already in danger chances are the child might die anyway and then if you if both the mother and the child die then well there's going to be fewer babies at the end of the, at the end of the day or the year or something um, but so what does this mean so mostly it means that the far right is full oh, of shoot only I'm not saying shoot you're smart you know what I mean it's one big hypocrisy just as Alito is simply lying when he's denying that abortion rights have, have no historical place in the United States. Sure, there's people who actually believe this nonsense, but underneath it all, there is no good argument. Abortion is an issue that helps the religious right to maintain power. That's it. It's not about life. It's not about God. It's not about religion. It's just about some people having the power to tell other people what to do with their bodies and what to do with their lives, and then getting real hissy when they're being told no. So, what can you do about all this nonsense? Other than making no friends at the next family gathering, uh the things that I, that I told you here. Well, how about donating a few bucks to your local abortion fund? Go to abortionfunds.org funds to find a list of abortion funds listed by state. We will put the link in the podcast description. And now, I'm coming back down from a soapbox. Today's edition was strongly informed by the BillMeyers.com article, A Brief History of Abortion Law in America, by Irene Cameron, and by Randall Ballmer's Guardian article, There's a Straight Line from U.S. Racial Segregation to the Anti-Abortion Movement. These links, too, I'm going to put into the podcast description. And we are still live from the city of Broad Hangovers. This is hell. Now let's see about the rest of the answers to this week's question from Hell. Um, yeah, actually, there's not a lot left. It always, always seems to be a problem that there, there's not a lot of people giving new question from Hell answers between uh, Wednesday and uh, between Wednesday and uh, Thursday. <laughs> so let's see let's see let's see what do we have here um yeah on Twitter Lorian says what's distracting them from class war it's class war wow oh. and uh Kim G says unfortunate teeth did I already read that I'm not sure if I already read that um yeah, and that concludes this week's question from hell. Slim Pickings. Slim Pickings, not the actor, but but the fact. Um <laughs> so let's see who gets who gets this week's question from hell. Let's actually go for. Let's go for. Let's go for. What are we going for? I'm going to go with Neil C. Neil C's answer was He's being distracted from the class war by his love for money. And if he loves money so much. We'll just throw some free merch his way. Congratulations, Neil C. And this concludes this week in Limbo. I am uh, very sorry about our weird audio issues today. I don't know what happened there. Uh, we will be back with more Limbo. Actually, we will be back with Chuck tomorrow um, on Patreon. Um, and we will be back with more Limbo next week, maybe even Purgatory, and also Chuck, who knows, um, actually not who knows, but next week, um, next week will be more Limbo, but there will also be more Chuck, is what I'm saying. Um, we will have more staff fakes, and a brand new Rotten History, um, hopefully a brand new Moment of Truth, and of course a brand new Question from Hell, with equally brand new Answers. Thanks to all my co-producers, Alex, Jerry, Lindsay, Dan, um, and of course to Chuck, uh, who keep the show going, even if our dear leader is still trying to get rid of this curse. And with that, to all of y'all listening, be it live at thisSL.com or as a podcast, wherever, whatever you're doing, whoever you are, whatever you are, good guy, bad girl, A non-binary person with a gun. A guy with a knife. A wife with a knife. A mutated giant iguana with a baseball bat. I wish you all a good and happy
1: weekend. My demon is
0: on my butt. (laughs) My (laughs) demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. Uh And my demon tries to knock me down...